to Hear the Word of God, the online and broadcast teaching ministry of the Rev. Eric Alexander. There's a general theme, both in the whole of the epistle to the Hebrews and in this part of it, which we are studying just now, because we have been away from it for a few weeks. The general theme of the epistle to the Hebrews we have been discovering is the supreme glory of our Lord Jesus Christ as God's Messiah and our Savior. That is again and again what the apostle is concerned to display before us, the surpassing worth of the Lord Jesus Christ as God's only mediator between God and men. This epistle is addressed to Jewish believers who appear to have become weak and wavering through pressure of circumstances and opposition most probably. They are somewhat discouraged and above all they are needing spiritual maturity and spiritual stability. And so the author writes this word of exhortation as he calls it to them to exhort them towards stability and maturity, spiritual growth and perseverance. One of the great characteristic words of Hebrews is the word perseverance. Let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us. Looking unto Jesus who persevered, endured the cross. And the whole characteristic of the epistle it bears this mark in it. It is a word of exhortation to them then, to stability and maturity. Now, what is the core of the message which will give them this strength and stability which they lack? Give them this encouragement that they are so desperately needing. Strengthen the weak hands and confirm the feeble knees, as it were. What will do this? Well, the apostles' great concentration is weak, needy believers needing stability and encouragement and maturity will find it all in Jesus. Consider him, therefore, is one of his great themes. Consider him the apostle and high priest of our profession. Let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us, looking away unto Jesus. Consider him, lest you grow weary in the midst of this race. Now he is exalting Jesus, therefore, as God's prophet, as our great high priest, and as the coming king of the universe, whose enemies will one day be made his footstool. There is nothing so healthful, therefore, for the weak and discouraged believer than, in the words of John Newton, to ponder the glories of a crucified, risen, and exalted Redeemer. And that's what we are doing in Hebrews, pondering the glories of the Redeemer. Now this particular section which we are presently studying has the theme of Jesus' surpassing glory as the great high priest whom God has provided for that thing we need above all other things, to be taken into his presence, to have access to him, to know the reality of a work of grace that brings moral cleansing to our conscience and gives us access into the presence of God. And this whole theme of Jesus as the great high priest begins at chapter 4, verse 14, 
Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. He goes on to speak to us about this high priest and goes right on to chapter 10 verse 18 where he comes to the end of the doctrinal part of the epistle and at verse 19 of chapter 10 begins the practical exhortation, therefore brethren since we have confidence and so on. Christ is here presented in these chapters then as the great high priest who is truly qualified to act as a priest since he is appointed by God, which was the first thing a priest had to be, chosen from among men, which is the second thing a priest had to be, and able to sympathize with our weaknesses, which was the third characteristic of a priest. We have not a high priest who cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tested like as we are. And this is the high priest whom God has provided for the needs of his people. But, says the writer, he is superior to the old order of priests whom these Jews knew, and they tended when they were thinking of priests to think of the old order of priests from the Old Testament. And he sets forth Jesus' priesthood in these superior realms. His priesthood is eternal, whereas theirs was temporary. He is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. That is, he is neither beginning nor ending. He gains an eternal salvation because he is an eternal priest. And those in every age and generation may find in Jesus the priest they need. That's why this is so relevant to us this evening. Our Lord Jesus is not a high priest for the first century. B.C. or A.D. he is the high priest eternally for all who come to God by him. And this is why, of course, you and I may find the same riches and glories in the Lord Jesus that men did here in Scripture. His character in the second place as a priest is perfect, whereas theirs was defiled and imperfect. He is a high priest, holy, harmless, and undefiled. His offering in the third place is once for all and effectual, whereas theirs was frequent and ineffectual. What he sacrificed, he sacrificed once for all, and his offering was accepted, and his sacrifice was a once-for-all sacrifice. His cleansing in the fourth place is for the conscience whereas theirs was for the flesh. Theirs was an outward ceremonial cleansing. His is an inward spiritual moral cleansing. Fifthly, he enters not into the shadowy tabernacle here on earth, which the priests of the old covenant did. He enters the true holy place in heaven and into the very presence of God himself. Now, so much of the blessing of this new order God has established in Christ can be summarized by saying that he is both the messenger and the mediator of the new covenant that God has sealed in his blood. 
Now we have found that the idea of covenant plays a great part in the epistle to the Hebrews and indeed the whole of scripture. The way God describes how he comes to bring the blessings of the salvation which he promises in Genesis chapter 3 in that beginning of promises in scripture ratifies to Abraham, seals to Moses, repeats again and again through the prophets. The promise of salvation is a covenant promise. And our God is a covenant-making and a covenant-keeping God. And the blessings he gives are the blessings of his covenant love, his covenant promise, his covenant mercy. And that covenant is the new covenant which Abraham was told of and which Jeremiah the prophet, for example, prophesied of, the whole Old Testament looked forward to, and all the saints of the Old Testament reached forward to, the blessings of the new covenant, which was sealed in the blood of Christ. Now in chapter 8, the apostle tells us that this new covenant will put the law of God into the hearts of men, that it will put the knowledge of God into the experience of men and banish sin from the memory of God. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel in chapter 8, verse 10. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Now that's the great characteristic promise of the covenant. God is searching for a people, you see. He wants a people for himself. This is God's great mission in a sense in the world. He is seeking a people and he comes as it were with his covenant love to seek out a people for himself and to covenant with them concerning the blessing of salvation which he brings to them. Now at chapter 9 verse 15 Jesus is described as the mediator of this new covenant and the basis on which he is the mediator is the shedding of his blood. Now this is what the writer wants to demonstrate to us in chapter 9 verses 15 to 22. Summarized in verse 22 you will notice, Indeed under the law almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness or remission of sin. Now, this is how Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant. He becomes the mediator of all the rich blessings of God's grace by becoming a sacrifice and offering himself for our sin. He is the mediator through the shedding of his blood. Now, you need to keep in mind if you are to understand why he emphasizes this so much in these verses, the need for Christ to die is one of the great messages of these verses 15 to 22. The need for the mediator to shed his blood. And the reason he emphasizes this is that the idea of the death of the Messiah, the shedding of his blood, was a stumbling block to the first century Jew. And this is why the Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that we preach Christ and him crucified. He says, to the Jew, a stumbling block 
to the Greeks foolishness, but to the Jew a particular stumbling block. Why? Because the Messiah he looked for was not going to be a suffering servant. He was not going to be one whose blood was shed, but a conquering hero. And that, of course, is why they sought to make Jesus a king. They were looking for a Messiah who was a conquering hero, not one who will become a suffering servant and shed his blood on the cross. And we need to keep this in mind as we read these verses from verse 15. He is explaining why the Messiah had to die, and he does so really in two ways. The concept of covenant carries with it the idea of the shedding of blood. I wonder if you recollect that throughout the whole of the Old Testament, the covenant was never sealed or ratified or made without shedding of blood. In Genesis 15, for example, when God makes a covenant with Abraham, there is the shedding of blood. There is the slaying of an animal and they pass between the slain parts of the animal. And there is a great significance in that that we can't go into. But the shedding of blood always accompanies the ratifying of the covenant. So it is with Moses in Exodus 24, for example, when the people were sprinkled with the blood that was shed by the slain animal. And Moses said to them, Behold the blood of the covenant which God has made with you. And the covenant itself was sealed with blood. And so when they got the ritual of the tabernacle and they were reminded of God's covenant mercy, again there was the demonstration of the shedding of blood. And in chapter 9, verse 18, Hence even the first covenant was not ratified without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. Verse 21, And in the same way he sprinkled with the blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels used in, the, in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And that blood was the blood of the covenant. Now you see he is seeking to bring home to them that God has all along said that the mediator of the covenant would mediate it by the shedding of his blood because it's by the shedding of blood that sin is forgiven. And Jesus' blood is the blood of the new covenant. This uh, phrase is used by Jesus, you will remember, in the institution of the Lord's Supper. The new covenant has this in common with the old, that it came into operation through the sacrificial death of an innocent victim. And Jesus says in the institution of the Lord's Supper, speaking of his own sacrificial death, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the remission of their sins. Now here he is emphasizing this vital truth of the need for a crucified Messiah, a mediator who would seal the covenant with the shedding of his blood. Now that is the blood which redeems in verse 15. Do you notice since halfway through the verse he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death 
has occurred which redeems them from the transgressions under the first covenant. Now that death which has occurred is the death of Jesus. And while a death has occurred is so often a phrase that is bad and tragic news. This is the most glorious news he is saying to men and women who have sin uncleansed in their conscience, who need a new covenant and a new mediator between God and men. A death has occurred and redemption has been secured in the blood of Jesus. Now, this is the first element in his emphasis on the need for the death of the mediator of the new covenant. But there is another truth he wants to teach us, and that is this. That concerns the immeasurable benefits and blessings, the endless riches which become ours through the covenant that Jesus as our mediator makes by the shedding of his blood by which the riches of God's grace become ours. You see, the point of this covenant is not simply that there is redemption. It's not simply that there is a remission of our sins. That's only the borders of God's ways in the covenant that he makes. When he speaks about himself as a God with covenant love for his people, he is speaking about something which is released in the death of Jesus, of the boundless riches of the grace of God. And here he wants to speak to us about it, and he does so. In the way that somebody's riches are released when they die and their last will and testament is read and people sit down and listen and discover the riches of this man. Think of some man of vast wealth. You know, like that miserable creature who died in America with vast amounts of money. And he died and everybody was waiting around to see the last will and testament, you know. I've seen this so often, incidentally. It's a fascinating thing to see people waiting for the last will and testament. And there is something wicked in me that loves it when they hear not a thing. But they're waiting for the last will and testament and waiting for the glorious riches to be given over to them. And suddenly... Suddenly they are endowed with vast wealth and glory. Now, says the writer of this epistle, listen to this. Do you see he is speaking to these poor, needy, weak, wretched Christian people who are poverty-stricken and conscious of their poverty? And he says, listen, he is the mediator of a new covenant, verse 15, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Now you see, there has never been a man in the universe who has possessed the riches or a fraction of them that God has prepared in Christ for his people. And when he calls you to himself, he calls you with this promise, not only that he raises you out of the spiritual gutter, as it were, from the fearful pit and the miry clay and puts you upon a rock and gives you a new song on your lips, but he makes you an heir of his. That's what you become in Jesus Christ. You become an heir of God. 
Now the mind boggles with this. You know, we do not have in our finite concepts, we do not have the language, we do not have the imagination to begin to see the glories of this. But this is what is waiting for us now, he says. In order to bring the riches of his grace to you. What is necessary before our will becomes operative? Well, what is necessary is the death of the testator, the person who makes the will. You can't touch it until death occurs. But when death occurs, the riches are yours. Now, that's the principle that he's expounding to us in verse 16. Where a will is involved, where a testament is, authorized version. The authorized version says there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. The RSV is clearer. The death of the one who made it must be established. For verse 17, a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Now he says the covenant the will, and interestingly, the Greek word for will and the Greek word for covenant are exactly the same. And the will, God's last will and testament, as it were. Do you remember at the very beginning of Hebrews? God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spoke unto our fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us in his Son. He has given his last word. He has written his last will and testament. And what is it? All the immeasurable riches of God, the creator of the universe, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, are yours, he says, in Christ, through his death. That's what Jesus' death has procured for you. Do you see it? The death of Jesus Christ has not just procured your forgiveness, and done some sort of negative thing like making sure that you will not be judged or condemned in the judgment day. The death of Jesus Christ has released the riches of God's grace for you. And you have been raised into a new world altogether. Talk about walking on air. Well now this is what God has done. And he helps us to grasp this. You notice three things about this will. A will concerns the distribution of someone's wealth. That's the first thing. Second, a will represents the wish of the testator alone. That's where will and covenant come together, you see. A covenant in the Bible is not a contract that I make with God. Now, if you do this, Lord, I'll do that. You sign here and I'll sign there, Lord, and we'll make this bargain. That's not the biblical idea of covenant. The biblical idea of covenant is God says, here is my covenant. These are its terms. And in my infinite grace, I offer it to you. And poor man in all his great need says, Lord, what bliss and mercy is this to take this covenant from you? Now, a will is exactly the same, you see. A will is in the wish of the testator. It is he who decides. It's not some sort of bargain that is made. There may be conditions 
for um, entering into all the benefits of a will. Um, there was a man in New Mills, well, no, it wasn't actually New Mills, but it was the Irvin Valley, who had a marvelous sense of humor, um, I thought, and when his will was read at the end of his um, life, um, the vultures had all gathered, and um, they, they read his will, and his son, during all his days, the man was a retired farmer, a lot of money, and uh, his son had got rather up in the world and uh, wouldn't wear boots. Now, boots to this farmer were of the very essence of uh, <laughs> style and comfort and of being a good Kuthi Esherman, too, you know, and he was always saying to the boy that... Uh, he should get some sense into his head and wear a pair of good boots, you know. Well, the marvelous thing was, when his will was read, the boy was to receive the major share of the estate. And he sat back, breathing a great sigh of relief because he was rather an eccentric old fellow and he wondered just what was going to happen to him. And then the last clause was, provided that for the rest of his life he wears boots. <laughs> Beautiful. There are conditions, you see, in wills for entering into all the benefits and blessings of them. There are conditions that God lays down. God lays them down, do you notice? Conditions God lays down for entering into all the blessings of his covenant. The blessings of his covenant, for example, are gained by his people through obedience. But... Above all, it is a matter of grace in the giving of them. Thirdly, the will of anyone requires a death before it can be implemented, and that's verses 16 and 17. We enter into the benefits of Christ's death through his crucifixion. So whether you're thinking of a covenant or a testament, what he is saying in verses 20, 15 to 22 is that the common necessity is a life laid down in death. And both the redemption of God's people from sin and the release of the riches of his grace depend upon it. That's the necessity of Christ's sacrifice of himself. Now from verse 23 of chapter 9, the author turns our attention to the nature of Christ's sacrifice. The necessity of it was first and now the nature of it. And here again you get this comparison between the ritual of the Old Testament tabernacle described as a shadow or copy and the entry of Christ into the true holy place of which the earthly tabernacle was a copy. Verse 23, thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things, that is the heavenly realities, the realities of Christ's moral cleansing of the souls of his people, of his gracious eternal work in the lives of men. It was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, that is, these outward rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into a sanctuary made with hands, a copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God 
on our behalf. Now you get the same idea at the beginning of chapter 10. Since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices which are continually offered year after year, make perfect those who draw near. Now, this idea of shadows and copies and images is important. And we have come across it before. And actually part of the method of teaching of the epistle to the Hebrews is repetition, you may have noticed. But he has been speaking already about this idea of shadows and copies of the real. Now, the question arises, you see, where is the real world? Where are the realities of which people so often speak? Let's get down to reality. Well, where is reality? Reality is in heaven. The real world is in heaven. The real glories are there, not here in this world. And it is merely images and shadows that we have here. And in the Old Testament, and this is one of the ways you understand the difference between the Old Testament and the New and the connection between them. The Old Testament contains the shadow of which the New Testament is the reality. It contains the promise of which the New Testament is the fulfillment. Now, the trouble with these people was, you see, that they were living in a world of shadows. They were being content with the images, not with the reality itself, with the model, not with the original. Now, the original of the tabernacle, you see, where is the original of the tabernacle? Well, the original of the tabernacle is in heaven. The tabernacle is merely a shadow of that true holy place into which Christ has entered. And the shadow is what the priests entered into. Now, this is an important thing for us to grasp. For moral cleansing, for ceremonial cleansing, you see the blood of calves and goats were shed and the ceremonial rites of cleansing the tabernacle went on. And this is what he speaks of in verse 23. But for moral cleansing in the heavenly places, that is in the realm of eternal salvation, in the realm of something that was going to be of eternal significance, so that we might be raised into these heavenly places of which the epistle to the Ephesians talks. It took something infinitely more than the blood of calves and goats, not the sacrifice of such animals, but by the sacrifice of his own blood, Christ entered in to the holiest place of all and put away sin. Now, the surpassing glory of what Christ has done in this sense is expounded to us in these verses. Just let me point it out to you. One, he did not enter into an earthly sanctuary, but into a heavenly, into heaven itself. That is, right into the presence of God. Verse 24, Christ has entered into not a sanctuary made with hands, a copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. He has secured, therefore, the real salvation of which all others 
are merely shadows. Second, he did not offer calves and goats or indeed the blood of another. He offered himself. And that's the great significance of verse 25. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy place yearly with blood not his own. But the end of verse 26, as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the age to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And the whole universe held its breath, says Martin Luther, as the priest became the victim. Third, he did not offer himself repeatedly. But once for all, verse 26, at the end of the age, he would have had to suffer repeatedly if he had been like the high priest entering the holy place. You see, Christ, by offering himself, died once. He offered a sacrifice once for all. Now that's what you rest on for salvation, he is saying to these Hebrews. You rest on Christ's once offering of himself for the sins of his people. He once offered. And sin was put away. Now that's how incidentally you have to deal not only with Judaizing tendencies but with the devil's accusations. When he comes to you seeking to unsettle this basic conviction on which the believer rests. I rest on Christ and his atoning blood and sacrifice. He once offered himself for sin and sin was put away. And we rest on that. That's very important for dealing with the evil one. I may my fierce accuser face. Do you know how to face your fierce accuser? I may my fierce accuser face and tell him. Thou hast died. And when I know all that that death implies and involves, that's where I find the resting place for my soul. Fourthly, he did not cover sin over. He put it away. Now it's very significant that the Hebrew word for atonement was the word for covering sin over, covering something up. But what Jesus does, do you notice, in verse 26 is to put it away. He does not remind us, therefore, of sin. He puts it away. Now, this idea of the earthly and the heavenly, the shadow and the reality, helps us to see something else. It should help us to see why it is that we have no altar, no priest, and no sacrifice here. Why is it that we have no altar? It is because we need no altar. It is because an altar was found at Calvary where Christ made the one offering for sin forever. And to have an altar, which is a place where sacrifice is offered for sin, is to deny the once for all sacrifice of Jesus. We have no altar. We have no sacrifice. When we come at the Lord's Supper, we are not reminding, re-offering to God a sacrifice. We are reminding ourselves before God of his sacrifice. We have no priest. 
because our priest is in heaven. The real altar, you see, is the one where Christ was once offered. The real sacrifice was Christ himself. The real priest is now in glory. This is why we do not need shadows when we have a reality, beloved. It's not satisfactory if you see a man's shadow on the wall and say, I must go and have a chat with dear old so-and-so. I'm sure he's there because I see his shadow. But it's not a shadow you want to find. It's himself. It's the reality, and the reality is Jesus. Now will you notice as we finish the three appearances of the Lord Jesus in these last verses in the past and the present and the future as our great high priest. Do you notice in verses 24, 26, and 28, verse 26, first of all, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world, but as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the age to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Verse 24, for Christ has entered not into a sanctuary made with hands a copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. And verse 28, So Christ, having been once offered to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Now these three appearings of Jesus of which the apostle speaks answer exactly to the three appearings of the high priest on the day of atonement. And they were the pattern again for which this is the reality. First the high priest appeared, you will remember, for the purpose of offering the atoning sacrifices in the altar which stood in the courtyard outside the tabernacle. And the priest would appear and the people would wait and there he would suddenly make his appearance and he would raise his arms and offer the sacrifice and set his hands upon it and symbolically transfer the guilt of Israel to the head of the Lamb. And that was his first appearance. And then he passed from sight. And he went in to the sanctuary, the holy place, with the blood of atonement, there to make intercession on behalf of the people. And they waited for him to come out and to speak his final word, do you remember how Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist, went in because he was serving in the holy place? And he went in and the people waited for him to come out. And when he came out, he couldn't speak. Couldn't speak. But you see, he had made his public appearance. And these are the three appearances that the high priest made on the, um, the day of atonement. And Aaron... You remember, bore the names of the sons of Israel upon his heart into the sanctuary. And the high priest had the names of God's people engraved on his uniform. They were engraved there so that the names of God's people were born into God's presence. Exodus 28, 29 that is. And then he reappeared before the people. Now Christ's appearings are like that, you see. He appeared once. 
at the end of the age, that is at the end of the age of waiting, the end of the age before the Messiah's day dawned. He has appeared once for all at the end of the age to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. That's his first appearing. Here's his second appearing in verse 24. He has entered not into a sanctuary made with hands, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Beloved, can you grasp what that means? Our Lord Jesus has not just made one appearing, you see, but three appearings. He has appeared once in order that he might offer himself up as a full, final, glorious, and sufficient sacrifice for the sins of his people. He then disappears from view. He went from their sight. He was taken up from them. What was he taken up into? He entered into the heavens. And he there appears in the presence of God. Not inactive, but active. He ever lives, says this writer, to make intercession for us according to the will of God. And what has he taken in there? He has taken the needs of his people. He has them engraved like the high priest, not in his shoulders, but in his heart. Oh, who is the old writer who says, what's his name? Somebody help me. What's his name? But I'll tell you what he says anyway. He says, my Lord Jesus has gone into the presence of his Father, not with these names engraved on his shoulders, but engraved in his hands and on his feet. And he bears them into the Father's presence and continually reminds him of the needs of his people. That is what Jesus is doing just now. He has your needs, your name, and all what that involves engraved on his heart. And he is there this evening. Oh, we do not think nearly enough of the present ministry of our ascended Savior. And then one day, in the final day of his appearing, Christ will come to those who look for his appearing, who eagerly wait for him, as the apostle says at the end of verse 28. When he appears, do you remember 1 John chapter 3? Beloved, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us to call us sons of God. And it does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know this. He says, it doesn't appear yet. We don't know. The reason we don't know is not that God is being difficult by hiding it from us, but we just don't have the equipment to cope with it at the moment. It does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he appears... When he appears, what is going to happen? Well, he will not be bringing, he will not be procuring salvation for his people then. Christ, having been once offered to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to bring that salvation to its glorious climax. And what is the climax? Oh, it is that when he appears, we shall be like him. We shall be like him. And all the tribulation and trial will be worthwhile on that day. Because when we see him, we shall be like him. And all the moral failings in our character will be repaired on that day. You know, everything that is ugly in our character, that will be beautified. Every failure we have, every limp that we have in our lives, it will be put right on that day. 
And the glory, the moral glory of the Lord Jesus will be seen in his people so that he will be admired in all them that believe. Oh, what a day. What a day. What a day to look forward to. And what a savior to have. To bear you through this world until that day. Where else would you cast your anchor or rest your hope but in this Jesus? Let us pray together. Father, we bless thee for the gift of Jesus, for the new covenant sealed in his blood, for the riches of eternal grace made ours in him, for all the incredible glory of all that thou hast yet to do in us. Dear Lord, lead us on into it changed from glory into glory till in heaven we take our place. We pray that now thou wilt so labor in our hearts by thy Holy Spirit that we may press on into all that thou hast set before us in Christ. And to thy name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one great mighty God, we gladly give all the praise and glory and honor now and forevermore. Amen. You're listening to Hear the Word of God with the Reverend Eric Alexander, a minister in the Church of Scotland for over 50 years. To access more Bible teaching from Reverend Alexander, visit hearthewordofgod.org where your generous contribution will help us sustain and grow this ministry. That's hearthewordofgod.org. You could choose instead to mail a check to this address, 600 Eden Road, Lancaster, Pennsylvania, 17601, or call 1-800-488-1888. This program is a presentation of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. I'm Mark Daniels. Thank you for listening. Please join us again next time for Eric Alexander and Hear the Word of God.